Let's start off with a question and you can go ahead and write your answers into the chat box. Here's the question. What do these pairings have in common? One, Elizabeth Bennet and Fitzwilliam Darcy from Pride and Prejudice. Two, Han Solo and Princess Leia from Star Wars. And three, Amber Lumen and Wade Ripple from Elemental. I'll go ahead and give you 30 seconds. There you go. All right, so here's the answer. The answer is that it doesn't matter if it's 1813, 1977, or even 2023, the idea still holds strong in fiction that opposites attract. Now, let me ruin this by telling you that's not actually the case. Uh, according to an extensive study performed by the University of Colorado in 2022, the average couple shares around 82 to 89% of traits in common. So in other words, we are wired to seek after sameness. And according to experts, not just in our romantic partners, but also in the majority of our relationships. Uh, this is because according to sociologist Christina Cleveland, knowing what to expect is less cognitively demanding for our brains, and so we up for generalizing and making a quick judgment about what or who we encounter. So let me give you an example of this. Uh, what's this right here? Yeah, it's a chair, right? Uh, okay, what, what about this image right here? A little more expensive chair, okay. I think you're getting it, right? Okay, but let's try one last one. What's this right here? Looks odd, but you probably guessed it's a chair. You don't have to think too hard about whether something is a chair or not. Even if you come across a chair in a really odd shape you haven't seen before that costs a ridiculous $160, yeah, that red chair is $160, you still wouldn't spend too much time trying to figure out what that thing is and if you can sit on it. This is because our brains have already done the hard work of creating a general assumption about chairs, and so we can immediately make a judgment about them and whether they're safe to sit on or not. Uh, this is a process that is called cognitive misering. And if our brains didn't do this, life would be so much trying and so less efficient. I mean, imagine if every time you encountered a new chair, you had to think hard about what it was until you felt confident enough to sit in one. Uh, that would be miserable, right? So we should be happy that our brains were created in such a way to automatically categorize things for us. But here's the thing. We don't just do this with chairs. We also cognitively miser other people, and here's how that works. Uh, when we see parts of ourselves reflected in someone else, uh, when we see our interests, our passions, and temperaments, our, our tendency will be to like that person more because, well, we generally like ourselves, right? And because we like ourselves and like what we see of ourselves in another person in at least one area, we will then assume that person has 
other positive attributes. And if indeed they are like us, uh, we will keep that person close because their presence in our life, well, they validate us and they validate our understanding of self, community, and our world. And, and when we do this, sometimes it's really harmless. Like, for instance, I love Usher, and then I learn you love Usher, which makes me feel good about myself because someone else in the world is affirming my taste in music. So I then assume that you also have a proper appreciation for 2000s R&B, that you know objectively Confessions is a work of art, and that you also pretend Here I Stand and every album leading up to Coming Home doesn't exist. And so it becomes in my best interest to keep you in my social circle because when push comes to shove, I know you, you are going to be right there with me passionately arguing that Usher is the greatest male entertainer since Michael Jackson. And all this is harmless because here's the thing, at the end of the day, if you don't agree with me, if you hate Usher, I just think you have a bad taste in music. But I wouldn't conclude that you're a bad person. But unfortunately, we, we don't just categorize people based on whether they like Usher or not. Uh, we also do this based on gender, race, socioeconomics, and yes, you guessed it, even in political views and preferences. And this is where it gets dangerous because the same cognitive misering that attracts us to like-minded people is the same biological function that increases our aversion to differences. A, a person who is different than us is cognitively demanding because we can't easily predict what they're going to be like. So our tendency is to categorize unfamiliar as odd, unsafe, or even bad. Uh, their differences don't reflect us, and this makes us less likely to like the other person since we see very little of us in them. And if the differences are significant enough and we don't like them, we are likely to assume negative attributes in the other person. And because differences can violate our understanding and narrative of self-community and our world, guess what? We are more likely to stay away from those who are not like us. So here is the TLDL. You, it's too long. You didn't listen to everything I just said. Here's the basic point. We seek out and like people who are like us and we stay away from and can even grow to hate people who are nothing like us. But surely, you might think, Christians don't struggle with this issue, right? We who follow Jesus must be the outlier, right? Well, now, currently there are 200 denominations of Christians in the U.S., and the only reason we have 200 is because at least 200 times, followers of Jesus elected to surround themselves with people who agree with them and to distance themselves from people who are nothing like them. Now, I'm not saying that some of these separations weren't justified or necessary. But 200 times in the U.S. and 45,000 times globally, at some point, friends, we just need to admit that even in the church, even as Jesus followers, struggle with people who are different than us. But Jesus prayed that it would be different. In the 17th chapter of John, we find Jesus praying for his disciples before his death. And I imagine that if you know you're about to die, you're going to be really selective about what you pray for in that moment. Uh, because what you say to God is going to be what matters most to you. 
So as we read this, what we need to be thinking about is what mattered for Jesus? Well, let's read and find out together. He says this, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also believe in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. What matters most for Jesus is the unity of his followers. And that they would be one just as he and the Father are one. Now, there's a lot of theological language in John 17 that I don't really quite get. It's kind of a tongue twister. And scholars have written countless articles and books trying to explain what Jesus is saying right here. And none of them have really figured it out either because we're talking about the nature of God here. We're talking about someone who created the universe, who stands outside of time and who exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet is one God who cares enough about you and me to count the numbers of hairs on our heads. So we are never going to fully understand God, and if he did, well, he wouldn't be God. So that said, here is what we can say about God. We don't know how exactly the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can be three and one at the same time, but what we do know is that God is love. Which means that Father, Son, and Spirit cannot be anything but a fellowship of perfect love that casts out all fear. So here's the point. What Jesus is praying for is that the perfect love and unity that defines the Father, Son, and Spirit would be reflected by his followers. And that this love and unity would be so obvious and unignorable that it would prove to the world that Jesus is Lord. Now, it's worth noting uh, what the community Jesus prayed for ended up looking like in the first century. It included Pharisees, tax collectors, zealots, slaves, soldiers, Jews, Samaritans, Greeks, and Scythians, to just name a few. And if you lived in the first century and heard that all these people were in the same room together, well, you would go get your popcorn and get yourself a first row seat to the reality TV levels of dysfunction that this group was bound to produce. Because here's the thing, none of these people belong together. And every person in that group had at least one legitimate reason to hate someone else in that group. If the early church imploded, nobody would have batted an eye. But the reason why the church got everyone's attention was because in a world that was divided on everything, you had a community that was committed to embodying a love that casted out the fear, suspicion, and hostility that should have naturally won out. What makes Jesus' prayer revolutionary was not that it laid the ground for a community of people who looked alike, acted alike, and thought alike, because, well, anyone can do that. But because Jesus' prayer created an unignorable community 
made up of natural enemies who reflected the love and unity of the triune God, suddenly people had to consider that this Jesus just might be Lord. So here's the thing. Jesus' prayer wasn't just for his first century followers. It was also for us. Let's look back at the passage. My prayer is not for them, the disciples alone. I pray also for those, us, who will believe in me through their message. Jesus knew that 2,000 plus years later, we would still be living in a world divided by differences. And that one of the greatest temptations for the church would be to reflect the culture around us rather than to be a mirror of the triune God. He knew that our tendency would be to love those we like, to love those we agree with, but to keep away those people over there, he knew we would desire uniformity over unity. But church, if what matters more to us is being alike, then our witness will never cause the world to question who Jesus is and if he is truly at work. And the reason why is, well, let me try to illustrate this for you. Uh, when, when I was on vacation with my wife, my parents, and my in-laws, uh, we, we stopped at a restaurant, and I, I just remember they assumed that we were different parties. And, and to be fair, uh, that's a really easy mistake to make because we're an odd-looking bunch made up of one black man, two Koreans, and three white people. It looks like we're three separate parties. And while we were eating, I actually thought about how odd it was that we were actually at the same table together because, well, according to our world, we really didn't re belong together. Uh, here's the thing. At this table, let's do a demographic study here. We had one socialist Democrat, two centrist Democrats, an independent, and two Republicans. I'm not identifying who's who. We had three blue-collar workers and three white-collar workers. We had a Presbyterian, two nuns, an evangelical, a Baptist, and a non-denom. And racially speaking, uh, historically, we all hated each other at one point. So you might be wondering, and I was wondering, why are we eating overpriced bratwurst together in a pseudo-Bavarian village in eastern Washington? Well, the reason is because God brought Jill and I together in a covenant relationship, and that made us all family. Same goes for the church. Whether we like it or not, Jesus established a new covenant relationship between himself and everyone in the world. And, and that makes anyone who follows Jesus family. And this means that ideally, the world should be looking at any church and like those restaurant staff members, uh, they should be asking, are we together? Because here's the thing, any group can be made up of people who look like each other, think like each other, and act like each other. There's nothing divine or extraordinary about that. And if a church is only built for a certain race, a certain income, a certain political view, or even a certain gender, then guess what? The world will walk right past us and not take notice because all we are doing is exactly what everyone else in the world is doing. But if we want to be the community that Jesus prayed for, bled for and claimed would be the proof of God's love for the world and that he sent Jesus, then we need to embrace that unity matters more than uniformity. 
We need to realize that how we embody the gospel, how we treat each other, how we love people who are different than us is essential to our witness. We are two months into 2024, and if you're American, we have 10 more months where every ad, power, and personality will try to disciple us and convince us to hate and fear those who are nothing like us. But if you follow Jesus, if he is Lord and Savior, if you are now a part of Jesus' family, then your mission and my mission this year is not to fall into the trap the world is laying out for us, but to constantly remember what matters more and to commit to living out our family values. So Rainier View, here's our family values to remind yourself of when the world begins to tempt us this year. In this family, following matters more than winning. RVCC, let's be faithful to Jesus and love one another as he loved us. In this family, discernment matters more than dogmatism. Let's be lovers of the truth and speak the truth in love. In this family, kingdom matters more than country. Let's seek the prosperity of our shared home, but without forgetting where our citizenship truly resides. And in this family, Rainier View, unity matters more than uniformity. Let's commit to honoring and fellowshipping with those who are different than us so that the world might be compelled by what they see and that they might know that Jesus truly is.